Next on Lectures in History, Tulane University professor Carissa Haugeberg teaches a class about the legal history of abortion in the United States from the 1840s through 2016. She discusses laws in the late 19th century that originally criminalized abortion, as well as Roe v. Wade in 1973 and the court cases and legislation that followed that landmark decision. Her class is about an hour and 15 minutes. So we're nearing the end of the semester, and today's lecture gives us a good way to kind of bring together a lot of the themes that we've been studying all semester. So today we're going to be talking about reproductive rights in U.S. history. Um, and for today's reading, you read about jurisprudence since Roe v. Wade. So three major cases, Roe, Casey, and most recently Hellerstead. And today I'm going to talk about the back history. How did we get to the legalization of abortion in the United States, given that it had at one time been criminalized in every single state? So how did we get to Roe? Um, so first of all, I'm just going to remind you of some of the things that we've studied this semester, so some of the historical context. And one is that before 1821, laws were based upon English common law. And you might recall from an earlier reading that according to English common law, abortion was criminalized only after quickening. And remind me, what was quickening? Yes? Okay, and, and when who feels the heartbeat or when who feels the fetus move? So it was when the woman reported having felt the fetus move. And do you remember from our reading approximately when that is in a pregnancy? This is from an early reading. It's about four or five months into, into a pregnancy. So at, at about that time when the fetus actually moves, a woman would report that it had moved, and it was after that point that abortion was criminalized. But again, before that point, it was not a criminal activity. And the very first new abortion laws that were passed in the United States were done so in the 1820s. So a handful of states began to criminalize um, abortion after quickening, and these were new laws that departed a little bit from English common law. And in large part, these were poison control measures. And the reason why the authorities wanted to intervene is that there were unlicensed entrepreneurs who were selling women products that they promised would induce an abortion, but were in some cases actually, they were misleading these women. They were false products. They were poisons that these women were ingesting. And there were women who were getting very, very ill and dying from these poisons. So a handful of states stepped in and wanted to control the sale of poisons, things that were harming women. And it's important to note that women were not prosecuted. They were not the subjects of these laws. Physicians weren't the subjects of these laws. Um, so surgical abortions weren't outlawed. Mechanical ones weren't. Rather, it was a poison control method. It was, it was intended to protect women from these kind of nefarious entrepreneurs. Um, and I also, also want to note, abortion wasn't a big deal um, in this time, in the 1820s. Um, there weren't ministers decrying abortion from the pulpit. When candidates ran for office, they weren't asked about their position on abortion. It wasn't a, a vitriolic issue. Um, so these, these are embedded in very technical language. Most uh, This wasn't covered in the newspapers routinely. So most Americans had no idea that these new laws were being passed. 
Now, it starts to become a more public issue, a more controversial issue, between 1847 and 1867. And it's during this time period, about these 20 years, that every state that was at that time in the Union criminalized abortion in most circumstances. So usually the only way that it became legal to perform an abortion is if a woman's life was at risk. A handful of states also made an exemption if a woman's health was at risk. Um, and Louisiana is right smack in the middle of this effort. So Louisiana criminalized abortion in 1856. And technically that law was pretty strict. It was only if a woman's life would be jeopardized by a pregnancy. And so anyone caught performing an abortion for any other reason was subject of up to 10 years of hard labor in the state penitentiary if they were found guilty. Now, when historians go back and look at what actually happened, we found that when physicians performed abortions, even in the state of Louisiana, because they were worried about a woman's health, um, we found that they were never prosecuted. So even though technically that law was pretty strict, we always found that courts didn't really intervene, um, attorneys general didn't press charges. Um, so sometimes we have to be very mindful of the difference between what's written in the law and then how the law is practiced in society. So this is an important um, moment for historians to intervene and just see what was actually happening. Um, and you may recall from the essay that we read by Leslie Regan um, that there was a reason why these laws were passed. Do you recall who initiated the, this first campaign to criminalize abortion at all stages in pregnancy? Who wanted these laws on the books? Yes. Okay, so specifically, so before hospitals are a big deal, who within hospitals wanted these laws? Do you remember? Well, so initially, you're, you're very close, and that's going to come up, especially in the 1950s. But it's during this 100 years before, it's largely physicians who want criminal abortion laws. And who is providing most of the abortions in this time period? Yes. Midwives and people like that? Exactly. So it was midwives who'd been performing the abortions. And a lot of historians now look back at this moment and understand this to be a professional tension that these physicians wanted control over the obstetrical and gynecological market. Because in the 19th century, as is to the case today, it was one of the most lucrative markets. Um, childbirth is very expensive. Um, so if, as you grow older, you will learn that the bill that you get when you uh, or your partner has a child is very high. Um, so physicians very much wanted control over this market. So the argument that they offered was that abortion was murder but that it was sometimes necessary and that we needed people with a professional expertise to understand when it was necessary to intervene. So they said, you know, this is a professional issue. Let the professionals handle this issue. Don't let midwives control this market. They're not as well trained as we are. Um, so it was really um, a, a professional power play. Um, and it was successful. Um, and so one thing and, and one reason why it's interesting to study this issue through the lens of history is that we can kind of cut through the vitriolic debates that we now have about abortion and just see what, how did people respond to these laws. And one thing that historians know for certain is that even as every single state criminalized abortion, the practice still continued. Um, so we've looked at arrest records. 
Um, we've looked at hospital records, and we've looked at death records. And historians are now pretty confident that up to 25% of pregnancies between 1967 and 1973 ended through abortion. So again, between 25% of pregnancies between 1967 and 1973 ended by abortion. So this, the practice continued, even though it was technically criminal in most cases. So the dates, so a, a student asked me to repeat the dates. So between 1967, as every state has criminalized it, and 1973, 1860, sorry, 1867, <laughs> yeah, so 1867 and 1973, up to 25% of pregnancies was ended by abortion. So during the period that was criminalized. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. That's okay. That's all right. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, so again, it's a commonly practiced procedure, um, even though it's usually done criminally. And another thing, and this is something that we've read about this semester, is that the enforcement of these criminal laws varied tremendously over time. So according to an, or a reading that we did earlier this semester, at what point in global history did most authorities kind of ignore these laws. Yes, Francis. All right, so Francis said during the Great, Depre <laughs> Great Depression, and this was the case globally in the Soviet Union, most parts of Latin America, and the United States. Why did authorities turn a blind eye to these laws? Yes, because Maggie. Because children are expensive. They recognize that if people didn't have jobs, they likely didn't have the means to take care of children. And by ignoring some of the abortions that were going on, they allowed people to have a better chance for economic prosperity. Okay, so absolutely. So one thing that historians have found when we survey the record is that during periods of economic decline when people are suffering, generally authorities are more permissive of practices like birth control and abortion as people are suffering and having a difficult time feeding their families and may want to delay pregnancy or just have fewer... Um, children. Um, and so this kind of brings us to where we are at this point in the semester. What is the economy like in the 1950s? The post-war economy. Yes, Trent. Booming and everybody has a lot of money is what, what it kind of like gets generalized as. All right, so the economy is doing very well in the 1950s. And what are we in the middle of right after World War II? Yes. The baby boom, absolutely. So there's a lot of cultural emphasis on having a lot of children, being happy, being wanting to have more children. Um, so some people call this pro-natalist, that you're, it's pro-baby, pro-having more children. And so it's during this time period that the authorities actually ratchet up their enforcement of criminal abortion laws. So again, they'd been pretty hands-off during the 1930s, and they begin to reverse course in the 1950s. And there's much more scrutiny of abortion and making sure that people are not performing the procedure illegally and that women who are not technically qualified don't get them. At the same time, there's a, a medical history that's unraveling, and that's that um, physicians had previously usually performed in private practice. And think about like going to the dentist. You often probably go to a, a house-like structure um, it's usually not in the hospital. That's what going to the doctor used to be like. Um, sometimes the doctor would come into your home. 
But by the 1950s, physicians started to move their practices into hospitals. So whereas in the 1920s and 1930s, if a woman wanted an abortion and had a good relationship with her doctor, and this is something that we've talked about in this class, um, her doctor would often sign the paperwork that would make it look like this was medically necessary and perform it, and really no one was the wiser. If the doctor had written that on a piece of paper, um, that was sufficient. But now that doctors are starting to move into hospitals in the 1950s, suddenly there are a lot more people scrutinizing what those doctors are doing and the decisions that they're making. And so that leads us to today's lecture, this, this period of increased scrutiny on abortion. Um, okay. So there was popular reform. So there are reform movements that lead us to Roe v. Wade. So how do we get to this period of increased scrutiny to reform? And among the reasons why there was a lot of popular support for criminal abortion laws is that the number of women who began suffering skyrocketed by the 1950s. So as it became more difficult to obtain abortions from doctors, women turned to the illegal underground market. Um, and it's estimated um, that 1.2 million women were turning to the underground by the 1960s. So rather than going and getting um, a legal abortion, they're turning to a variety of providers. And again, these experiences vary wild wildly. Um, some women find trained nurses and physicians who give them safe abortions. And these doctors and nurses are working illegally. They could be put in jail for their work. Um, other women end up going to um, nefarious, untrained people and getting unsafe, what we call botched abortions. Um, and as I've mentioned to you, there was a Tulane student who ended up getting a botched abortion in the French Quarter um, in the early 1960s and died from that procedure. Um, so again, 1.2 million women were navigating this underground, this illegal market, and having wildly different experiences. And by the mid-1960s, as many as 5,000 American women were dying every year from botched abortions. So again, overwhelmingly, most are getting safe abortions, but still, 5,000 women a year started to die, and this is a, a significant increase from where we'd been in the 1930s. Um, and women of color were four times more likely to die from botched abortions than white women. And why do you think that would be the case? Why would women of color be so vulnerable to an illegal market? Any ideas? Yeah, Trent. So they like, couldn't get a safe abortion because of uh, like segregation and things like that, too. Probably. Okay. Like their doctor wouldn't, they couldn't get a good doctor. Okay, so, yes. Um, most people found safe abortion providers through people they already knew who had abortions. So if they hadn't had access in the past to safe abortions, they wouldn't have been able to have access then. So what I'm hearing from both of you is that you needed a, a doctor willing to vouch for you in order to get through a hospital ap appropriation process. Yes? If you were to go to um, like a doctor after you found out the abortion was botched, and you were probably less likely to get help from them fewer person of color, or like you might be blamed more heavily than like a white person. All right. 
So if I'm understanding Florence correctly, what you said is that women of color might have been more reluctant to get help after getting a botched abortion or had fewer places to turn? Okay. Yes, Francis. I think it's like cost prohibitive as well, like perhaps living closer to the poverty line they couldn't financially access the service. All right, so Francis is pointing out that it became cost prohibitive, and that's one thing that we know about these um, abortion committees, and that's what they were called. You had to go through a committee approval process in a hospital, and in order to get committee approval, you had to see a psychiatrist and often two separate physicians, and you had to pay usually out of pocket for all of these visits, plus you had to pay for the abortion. So women of means were much more likely to be able to afford this process. But it's important to note that even women of means, their petitions were usually rejected too. Um, okay, so in a sense, by the 1960s, we have a public health crisis on our hands. Um, hospitals have to open special septic wards to treat all the women flooding in from botched abortions. Um, and this is affecting women across all socioeconomic groups, all religions. Um, and so, again, this is considered to be a public health crisis by the 1960s. And so one thing that you might find interesting that is that among the people who called for reform were clergy. They were some of the most vocal um, proponents for revising these laws. And why clergy? Like, why would clergy be calling for the decriminalization of abortion? Like, what position do they have in society? What are their experiences? Who would you imagine some of these young women were turning to for help? Yes. Um, I guess, well, number one, like the clergymen were highly looked upon in society and like their wives were dying, so. Okay. And their like wives and family members could have been having issues with this. So you're mentioning that like clergy are witnessing women in their lives and, and, and maybe in their congregations um, suffering? Okay. Yes. I think that also becomes clear like in certain religions which put an emphasis on confession and other things. And so they're the people hearing about these problems per se. Okay. So when it so among the things that I'm hearing from you is that um, we tend to confess deeply personal things only to certain people, right? And among the people who end up taking in a lot of deeply personal information are clergy. That's often who we turn to to have these difficult conversations. And keep in mind that clergy are also presiding over the funerals of young women, of mothers who are dying from abortion. So for them, it became a very personal issue. They're comforting grieving families. They're trying to help young, scared women who are potentially going to break the law. Um, so it becomes a moral imperative for some of these clergy. And again, this, this group that formed it was called the Clergy Consultation Service. It was ecumenical. It was a lot of, there were rabbis, there were Baptist preachers, there were minister, uh, Methodist ministers. Um, and what they did is that, especially by the 1970s, what they did is they helped to ferry women to states where the procedure had been legal, legalized. So especially to New York State, um, to Washington, D.C. And they strictly regulated who they would let women see. So um, they wanted to make sure that the physicians who were performing these procedures were not overcharging women. They would interview women after their experience to make sure that they were treated well. Um, so they provided their own regulatory mechanism as well. 
Um, and it's estimated that by 1970, the clergy consultation service was helping an estimated 150,000 women a year um, to secure legal abortions. Um, and they were in almost every state. Um, and they often worked with college student groups um, because there were so many college women who, who sought abortions. Another group that was important um, were women who were deemed to be sympathetic. So a sympathetic woman in this era would have been a woman who didn't want an abortion but somehow had to have one. Um, and so two things really guided this. Um, there were a lot of pregnant women who had wanted pregnancies, wanted to have their children, who were infected with German measles. There was a German measles epidemic in the 1960s. And this caused horrible birth defects um, in babies. Um, so for women who were pregnant, this caused horrible birth defects. Um, and the second major thing that happened was that there was a thalidomide scare. And have, you, have any of you ever heard of that drug, thalidomide? Yes, Trent. And what do you know about thalidomide? Do you know anything? Uh, it's like a tranquilizer, but it's, it was really dangerous, and it wasn't tested very well before they put it on the market. Yeah, and it ended up getting cold. Okay, so it wasn't tested very well. Um, and among the reasons why many of you probably have never heard of it is that it was never approved by the FDA in the United States. Um, in the 1960s, the FDA was headed by a woman, and she said, you know, there just hasn't been enough data on this drug. I don't feel comfortable signing off on the approval of this. So it was never legal in the United States. And this is why there weren't a lot of women who ingested this drug in the 1960s. But nevertheless, this drug made it into the medicine cabinets of some American households. And perhaps the most famous person, American, to have taken thalidomide while pregnant unknowingly um, was a woman named Sherry Finkbein. You spell her name S-H-E-R-R-I-F-I-N-K-B-I-N-E. And this is a very typical, tragic story of like how somebody unwittingly needs an abortion. So um, in 1962, she was pregnant with her fifth child. Um, she was a well-known person in Arizona. She hosted a popular children's show called Romper Room. It was kind of like Mr. Rogers. So among children in Arizona, she was very well-known as a public access show. And again, she was married, pregnant with her fifth child, wanted this pregnancy. And her husband was a high school band leader and went over to England with his band, his high school band. And while he was there, he had a hard time sleeping. So he went to a doctor. And the doctor prescribed him thalidomide. And it helped him a lot. He was able to sleep the rest of the trip. And he brought that prescription, that medicine, home with him to Arizona. And it was at that time that his wife, Sherry, started to suffer from a lot of morning sickness. She was very uncomfortable. And she wasn't sleeping well and was still filming the show. And so he said to his wife, why don't you take this drug that I was prescribed when I was in England? It helped me so much to get to sleep. So she began to take it for, for several nights. And then one morning she opened the newspaper and read an article about how this drug, thalidomide, had been linked to all sorts of very bad birth defects um, throughout Europe, especially in Belgium, Germany, and then, of course, in England. And, and these were very tragic stories. Um, depending upon what stage of pregnancy women ingested this drug, 
Their babies would be born with um, all of their organs outside of their body. They often only survived a couple of hours. Um, if it was ingested in other parts of the pregnancy, it often resulted in flipper arms. Um, so, like, people would just have, like, a little bit of a limb, um, often either, either their arms or their legs. Um, so she called her doctor immediately and said, look, I, I just read this article. Can you help me to understand, like, what the implications of this are? So he made a few phone calls to physicians in England, and he learned that, indeed, she'd taken it during that point in pregnancy in which the outcome is almost inevitably horrible, that um, a baby is born with their intestines out, that they only survive a few hours. Remember, this is an era in medical history before there was a lot of very good neonatal care. So there was very little that physicians could do to help these, these babies who were born. Um, and so, of course, she and her husband are just, like, so beside themselves. They were inc incredibly sad by this news. They wanted this baby. Um, but her physician advised her, he said, you know, if you were my daughter, I would advise you to get an abortion. Um, and what makes this all very tricky is that in 1962 in Arizona, as in most states in the United States at this time, the only way you, a woman could legally get an abortion is if her own health or life were at risk. And in cases like this with German measles and thalidomide, a woman could carry a pregnancy to term and be perfectly healthy the whole time. It's, it's the fetus that was, it was the baby that was going to be born deformed. So according to the letter of the law, Sherry Finkbein should never have been approved for an abortion in the state of Arizona. But her physician pulled some strings and got her approved for a medically approved abortion at a Phoenix hospital. And Sherry Finkbein, in, in between you know, getting this approved, getting an appointment set, she called a local newspaper because she wanted to get the word out. There was a military base really close to her house, and she said, you know, if my husband brought this drug back from England, other, um, these military guys could be bringing this drug back to their wives, and these women who want to have babies could unwittingly be taking this drug that will cause them to have you know, children who are going to die. Uh, so she granted an interview with a local newspaper, and it was a front-page headline. Local woman takes thalidomide, has been approved for an abortion in an Arizona hospital. How would you imagine that the administrators of that Arizona hospital that had approved that abortion reacted? No, they... They locked it down. They knew that they could be sued by the attorney general for being in violation of the state law. So they immediately called her and said, your abortion is canceled. You cannot have it here. You've put us at enormous risk of being sued. Um, and so then she started calling around to other hospitals. Well, by this point, the story had been picked up on the wires and had run in almost every newspaper in the country. No hospital wanted to touch this case. Um, and eventually, she had to go to Sweden to get this procedure. Um, and her husband was a high school teacher. She hosted a public access show. Um, so they found a travel agent who was willing to pay their ticket because they couldn't afford to go on their own. Um, and what's especially tragic about this is that almost immediately, they were targeted by protesters. They got hate mail. Um, their house had to be... Um, uh, 
the FBI had to come out to protect them for a while because they received so many death threats. Their children received death threats, and even their dog received a death threat. Um, this is all in the, in the archives. Um, but nevertheless, she became this rallying cry. So people who had previously thought, like, abortion is a private issue, that's something we don't talk about in polite society, the tide began to turn because they thought, you know, if this woman who needed an abortion but, like, never thought she'd want one was put in, in, under this much stress, what could happen to my daughter or my wife if something happened? So this became a catalyst for a lot of people to engage this controversial topic who really had never wanted to have anything to do with it. Um, and then as we've been talking about in this second half of the semester, there's also a resurgent feminist movement that's afoot by the late 1960s and into the 1970s. And these women are making the claim that in order to be equal participants in society, women need the right to birth control and abortion. So in order to finish college, to complete a graduate program, um, women needed to be able to delay their pregnancy. Um, but one thing that's important to note is that in large part, these are not the influential people who are influencing state legislators or judges at the time. So another thing that's circulating in the background, and, and again, when we think about abortion, we almost always fixate immediately on the legal history. But again, there's this important social history, but there's also an important legislative history that's unfolding at this time. Um, so this is a period of legislative reform. And one thing that a lot of students don't recognize before taking classes like this is that um, before Roe v. Wade, there were some states that had already begun to change their abortion laws, um, either by reforming them or, as in the case of New York and Colorado, repealing them altogether. So again, this is a, there was a reform movement already afoot by 1967. So th these, these states in pink and red were states that had begun to reform between 1967 and 1973. Any questions so far? Okay. So among the most successful lobbyists and the most well-funded lobbyists at this time were physicians. So physicians had the ear of these state legislators. And, it was phys and what's interesting about this is who had led the campaign to criminalize abortion in the 19th century? Physicians. physicians. And now, once again, it's physicians leading the campaign to decriminalize abortion in the 20th century. And for them, uh, they were so very aware of the acute public health crisis. They were the ones treating 15-year-old girls coming in with botched abortions. Um, so again, and, and the argument that they made is that these laws interfered with their ability to make a professional judgment. That, that the state has no business interfering in their relationship with their patient and providing the care that they think ought to be provided or not provided. Um, so again, it's the most successful, powerful lobbying group. It wasn't feminists going and, and talking to their state legislators or le legislators being particularly interested in the feminist movement. Um, for the most part, it was these physicians. Um, and uh, what's also notable 
is that in the 1960s, a record number of women became state legislators, so both Republican and Democrat. So the types of issues that they, that they thought were important to start litigating changed um, because diversity matters. So these legislators became more attentive to things like domestic violence laws, um, birth control laws, abortion laws, um, family laws, um, inheritance. And so what's interesting is that in many of the states that reformed or repealed their laws, this legislation was often initiated by women legislators. And it was just as likely to be a Republican as it was a Democratic woman. So there were a lot of feminist-identified, pro-choice Republican legislators. Um, and many of you did your oral history projects, found these Republican women. Um, can you raise your hand if you were one of them? I know there were a few of you who found, okay. And Jordan, what is it that you found? Like you, you studied the oral history records of one of these Republican women, and, and what was she like? She, at one point, she lost her seat in her house legislator, and the GOP representative for North Carolina called her to ask her to run again, and she told him that she refused to run if they tried to muzzle her on women's issues. And so if they refused to, if they tried to quiet her when she was talking about just like women's issues in general, then she wouldn't run. And they needed her so much that they, they let her run and the GOP didn't contradict whatever she said. Okay, okay. So, so Jordan found the example of a very powerful North Carolina legislator who was a Republican, but who was feminist identified and, and advocated on a bunch of, a, a range of women's issues. Um, but what her, the oral history transcript that she studied really got at is that in the 1970s, the Republican Party was in flux. It was changing a lot. And so um, for a lot of these feminist-identified Republican women, there would not be a place for them in the Republican Party by the 1980s. Yes? Um, I don't know if this is something we talked about in this class, but I think in the 1970s and 80s, like the Republican Party was losing the track, and I heard that kind of that's why they picked up this abortion issue. That like this was kind of they kind of picked up this libertarian issue of abortion, and it kind of became like their big thing. So all these people that were anti-abortion like came with them when it used to kind of not be a Republican Democratic issue. It used to just kind of be like a personal <clears throat> preference. Like it became this way for the Republican Party to like rise up again. Okay. Absolutely. So Amanda is getting at this issue of like how did the how did abortion become like this hot button, very partisan, very ideological history or, or issue in our in politics today. And I think one thing that's so interesting about starting the history of it is that we now know like that was not always the case. Like this wasn't always a hyper partisan issue. This wasn't the sort of question that we would have asked a presidential candidate in 1964. What are your thoughts on abortion? Like that would have been considered impolite um, and and kind of irrelevant to politics. Um, but it has become such a very divisive issue, and that that began in the 1970s and in through the 1980s. Um, so what we have in the 1960s are. Republican women, and they don't feel like they're being hypocrites or that they're being strange by offering this legislation. And remember that the Democratic Party is still the party of Catholics in the 1960s. So a significant number of state legislators who are Democrats um, are anti-abortion during the 1960s. So it looks very different from the politics that we see today. Um, all right. 
So, um, so again, in 1967, Colorado became the first state to completely repeal its abortion law. So that meant that a woman could, didn't have to have that health exemption or a life exemption in order to get an abortion. Um, but they, they ensured that it was only for in-state residents. So the, the case study that we're more familiar with is New York. In 1970, New York passed a similar law allowing elective abortions, but they allowed any woman to come in. So a woman could come in from Louisiana or from Tennessee. So that's a, it's a much better known because women from all over the country flooded into New York to get abortions in the 1970s. That's a better known study. And you might look at this map and think, wow, that's really strange. Like all of these states that, we, that have historically been pretty conservative are all pink. Um, was there something going on there? And often the thing that was going on there is that they were reforming their law from having a strict only in the case of a life being in jeopardy of a woman to also saying if a health is in jeopardy. So it was a, a modest expansion. So, so don't uh, look at that and think that these are states that were suddenly mimicking New York. They, they were not. They were, they were just modestly expanding their laws. And so now I'm going to move to closer to the reading that we did for today, and that was about the legal history. Um, and so before we talk about abortion specifically, it's important to know what's afoot, what's in the air legally leading up to Roe. And what's in the air is the revision of birth control laws. So the legal reform begins with the legalization of birth control. And the case that you're probably most familiar with is Griswold v. Connecticut. That was in 1965. And so this is a, Griswold basically invalidated a law that's been lurking in this class all semester. When Margaret Sanger was arrested for talking about birth control and started trying to open a birth control clinic, what was she found guilty of violating? It's an old 19th century law. Yes, Jordan. The Comstock Act. Act. Absolutely. So the Comstock Act was passed in 1873, and that was still on the books until 1965. So this 1873 law, the Comstock Act, was on the book. And that prohibited people from disseminating information or, or actual birth control. So that was a crime, and people were prosecuted if they did that. It didn't matter if you were married or single, that was a crime. And so in 1965, the Supreme Court ruled that 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 law, the laws that prohibited birth control from being dispensed, were unconstitutional. But what's important is that the Griswold case only legalized birth control for married women. So not for unmarried women. This restricted it to married women. And the Supreme Court pointed to the 14th Amendment, and they said, although it's not explicitly stated in the 14th Amendment, embedded within the 14th Amendment and other places in the Constitution, including the Fifth Amendment, is an implicit right to privacy. And again, does privacy, does that word appear in the Constitution? No. So they're making a tricky argument here. They're saying it's implicit, it's implied throughout the Constitution that Americans should have a right to privacy in certain contexts. And 
So in Griswold, they said one of those contexts. Oh yes, Jordan. No, there were no women in this, on the Supreme Court in 1965, no. Um, so uh, they said that, uh, so the court ruled there's a right to privacy in certain contexts. And one of the times in which Americans should be entitled to privacy is when they're meeting with their doctor. That in the, in the office of, of a doctor's office, you should be able to be honest with your doctor your doctor should be able to exercise their professional judgment, that that's kind of a sacred space and that the state really shouldn't intervene. So, so again, it was like there was a right to privacy. Um, and then in 1972, the, issue, the ruling in Griswold was extended to unmarried women too. So unmarried couples could do this in 1972. So it's kind of shocking when you think about the sequence of events 1972 is one year before Roe v. Wade. So we're starting to see this legal history unfolding kind of quickly in quick succession just before Roe v. Wade. And again, it's this concept of privacy, physicians exercising their professional judgment, that's what's holding sway at this time. Um, And so then the most famous and controversial of all abortion cases um, is Roe v. Wade, which was um, decided in 1973. And I have a picture of what Sarah Weddington, who was the lead attorney for Roe, looked like, because I wanted you to see how young she was. She was 26 years old when she was litigating before the Supreme Court, so no pressure. <laughs> but um, she was 26 years old. This was her first case, and it went to the Supreme Court, which is amazing. Um, so, uh, many of you probably already know this, but for those of you who don't, I just want to go through this. Sometimes when there's a controversial case, people ask to be anonymous because they, they, they don't want the, the pushback. They want to keep their privacy. And in abortion cases, this is especially common, and it makes sense, right? This is a controversial issue. So in this case, the woman who the suit was filed on behalf was unnamed. They gave her a pseudonym, which was Jane Roe. So that's why it's called Roe v. Wade. Roe is not an actual person. That's a pseudonym. Um, and then Wade is just the um, district attorney whose name is put on these cases. So it's, it's not Mr. Wade, the human being, being sued. It's him in his role as the district attorney having to enforce the laws on the books. Now, do you remember what state this originated out of? Where does Roe v. Wade come out of? Yes, Jordan. Texas. It's out of Texas. And the final case that we read for today was Hellerstead. What state is that out of? Texas. Texas. Yeah, isn't this kind of interesting that Texas ends up being the hotbed of all of these cases? Okay. So um, in this case, um, this woman who at the time was anonymous, and we do now know her name, and she came forward and openly said her name. So I'm not violating her privacy by telling you that her name was Norma McCorvey. She was a, a young, single woman. She'd had other unwanted pregnancies, given um, those babies up for adoption. She finds herself pregnant once again, unmarried. And Texas had... Um, one of the strictest laws in the nation. Um, It was one that um, only allowed abortion in the case of a woman's life was in risk. Well, neither her life nor her health was at risk. Um, She simply just didn't want to have another baby. Um, 
And so Sarah Weddington and another other groups of um, coalitions came together and sued the state of Texas, saying, you know, th this is not constitutional. There's no way that most women who have unwanted pregnancies qualify under the terms of the laws as they're written. So they filed suit against against Wade, um, against Texas, essentially. And in this case, again, which is one year after Eisenstadt, the court ruled in favor of Roe, um, saying that indeed that Texas abortion criminal statute was unconstitutional. Um, and there's a really interesting book that I recommend to you about the Supreme Court, court justice who wrote this decision. It was Justice uh, Blackman, Justice Harry Blackman wrote the decision. Um, and the book is called Becoming Justice Blackman. So Becoming Justice Blackman. And it was, it's a journalist for the New York Times who now is a professor at Yale who wrote the book. Um, it's Glinda Greenhouse. She wrote this book. And it's just all about like, how it is that this guy came to write this decision. And one of the things that's interesting about Justice Blackman is that he, before becoming a Supreme Court justice, had been the lead counsel for the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So he was a doctor's lawyer. He was used to malpractice suits. And so the summer, while he was trying to think through the decision, he went back to Minnesota and looked at reams of medical data about pregnancy. And as I get to the decision, you're going to kind of see that training at play, his, his longstanding interest in medicine at play. Um, so um, within that decision, um, he kind of mimics the language of those other two cases. He says that abortion restrictions early in a pregnancy violate a constitutional right to privacy. So that's very familiar to us by now, right? That's what Griswold sounded like. That's what Eisenstadt sounded like. So he's extending that rationale to abortion in 1973. And this is where we see his medical training come in. Very famously in this decision, he established what was called a trimester framework. So he's explaining, like, when can the state intervene to regulate abortion? When is that appropriate? When is it inappropriate? And he said, you know, during roughly the first trimester, so one here stands for first trimester, during the early stages of a pregnancy, states cannot prohibit abortion. So he argued, you know, at this point, you know, abortion is safer than childbirth, so the state does not have a compelling interest to intervene in doctor's judgment at that time. But as the pregnancy advances, the state does have more of an interest um, in regulating abortion, according to this decision. So he said during that second trimester, states can begin to impose some laws. But... And this is an important part of his decision. Those laws have to be re reasonably related to maternal health. So he's like, because the, the procedures become more technically complicated, it makes sense for the state to, to intervene and regulate more strictly those more technically complicated procedures. And then, according to the Roe v. Wade, he said in that final trimester of pregnancy, states can regulate or even prohibit abortion 
but that they must have those exemptions that have been in a lot of states. So they must always have an exemption to allow a woman to have an abortion if it jeopardizes her life or her health. Jordan. Um, about the second one, I'm just wondering how they're justifying all the current regulations that they're putting out that have nothing to do with maternal health, like claiming that physicians need admitting privileges in hospitals or anything like that. Okay. So we're now at this stage where, so Jordan is asking this question, in how, do, how does the proliferation of laws and regulations that seemingly don't advance women's health, how are those on the books and isn't that incongruent with what's written here? And that's exactly what we're gonna get to. So between 1973 and 1991, a lot of those laws that you're talking about, these more current laws, were ruled unconstitutional. So those laws, exactly as you're saying, they said, you know, this doesn't really comply with this part two of the decision. It, it doesn't seem to advance women's health. Therefore, it's unconstitutional. So again, a lot of state efforts to regulate abortion until, 19, until the early 1990s were, states tried to enact them, but they, courts usually invalidated them, ruled them unconstitutional according to the terms of Roe. And one thing, I'm sometimes reluctant to go through this too, in too much detail because this isn't the law anymore, right? This is what we read about. This was replaced altogether. So a lot of people commonly think that there still is this trimester framework. No, this hasn't been the case in quite some time. And so this is what you read about for today. This trimester framework, yes, Sid? So is this no longer how the law totally functions? Then in all of the current debates about abortion, how does the, the whole debate is whether or not Roe v. Wade is going to get repealed, at least that's part of it. Right. So how does that play into it if that's not our current law? That's a terrific question. So Sid's question is, why do we still have this debate among pro-choice and anti-abortion activists, like whether Roe is going to be overturned? And that's because the basic premise still stands. The ba basic premise that abortion is a right to privacy is still uh, case law. That is still case law. But the metrics by which we determine whether states can regulate, that's what's changed. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Good question. So this is what we read about today. The next major case, and, and you can ignore this map for now, but do write down Planned Parenthood of Southern Pennsylvania v. Casey. This is a major, this is a change. And basically, this is the case that threw out that trimester framework. Said this no longer is, holds. And it replaced that trimester framework with a new standard that still is law, and that's, or still is the benchmark for assessing whether something's constitutional. And that's the undue burden standard. So undue, so trimester framework, was replaced with the undue burden. And I've written out how the justices defined what in the majority de decision they said an undue burden is if the purpose, so the purpose of the law, so if its purpose or effect is to place substantial obstacles in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus, or seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability. So how did we get here? Um, so in the early 1990s, uh, the Pennsylvania legislature passed a law that was called 
the, the Abortion Control Act. So in the early 1990s, Pennsylvania's legislature passed the Abortion Control Act. And embedded within this act were a host of regulations that are now familiar to us. Um, they said that women had to wait 24 hours before getting an abortion. So they would go see a provider, but then had to go home for 24 hours before they could come back and get the procedure. So a 24-hour requirement. Women were required to receive what they called an informed consent booklet that itemizes the health risks of abortion. Um, they um, had to minor children had to receive um, written consent from at least one parent. So these are called parental re uh, notification laws. So minor children had to receive written consent from at least one parent. And according to this act, uh, married women who wanted to abortions had to notify their spouse. So there was a, it was, it's called a spousal notification law. So these were some of the things that were in this act. And it got litigated. And what's interesting is that when this case was handed down in 1992, no one knew what to make of it. Um, Pro-choice people didn't know whether to be happy by it. Anti-abortion people didn't know whether they should be celebrating. It was, it was a really complicated and confusing decision. And one of the reasons why it was so complicated is that they started out by saying, we want to assure you Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land. We still believe that abortion is a right to privacy implicit in the 14th Amendment. So at that news, pro-choice people were happy. This sounds good and anti-abortion people were very distressed. But then they said, but this trimester framework, we're gonna undo that. We're gonna replace it with this undue burden. And they said, now, as we look at these different laws that are part of this Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act, here's what we think is an undue burden. So they said, uh, the 24-hour waiting period, not an undue burden. Uh, minors needing written consent, not an undue burden. The informed consent booklet, not an undue burden. The only one that they said was an undue burden was the spousal notification requirement. They said that's an undue burden. That, that fails to pass this new test. And the thing that they cited in the decision is that they said a woman could be married to a man who it, it could be in a domestic, domestically violent relationship. And she could be subject to abuse from her partner if she's required to tell him that she's having an abortion. Um, and almost immediately after getting, reading this decision, a lot of pro-choice people read that and said, but isn't it just as probable that a minor girl could be in a domestically violent family situation? Um, but the court did not intervene in, in that, so didn't apply that logic to minors that they applied to adult women in married relationships. Um, so to get back to Jordan's question, this is when we see the proliferation then of all of these laws and regulations. So between 1992 and 2016, almost no regulations were deemed to be undue burdens um, by, the, by the Supreme Court. So this is why we see this, this proliferation of regulations. So this is a map that only just shows the parental notification requirements in every state. So I know that it's a little tough to see in the back, so I'll just decode the, this map for you. 
So the dark purple, so Louisiana is one of the dark purple ones, those are laws that have um, parental consent in effect. The yellow states like Florida, Georgia, West Virginia, and much of the Midwest, they have parental notification. So you just simply have to inform your parent. You don't need to get their permission. Um, the green states like Texas, Oklahoma, Virginia, and then in, in the West, those have um, laws requiring both consent and notification. Um, and let's see, there are places where it's not being enforced. So New Mexico and California technically have these laws on the book, but they're not being litigated. Um, so that means that physicians are going ahead and performing these abortions without getting technically that, that notification. And um, there are only a handful of states um, um, up in the Northeast and then in uh, Washington and Oregon that do not have parental involvement laws. So again, as of right now, these are, these are constitutional. So this, this is all legal. Yes, Sid. And do we see a change in like the statistics and who's getting legal abortions at this point than we did pre this? Well, so, so one thing that's actually very interesting, so Sid is asking about abortions. One thing that is kind of interesting is that the abortion rate has declined pretty significantly um, in the past five or six years. And um, there were a lot of theories, like what's happening? Is there better sex education? Is the economy doing better so people aren't seeking abortions? And public health researchers, and do we have any public health majors in here? Thank goodness for you, because you help give us facts that we need to understand this. Public health researchers have helped us to figure out that um, more people than ever have access to birth control, um, largely because of the Affordable Care Act. So mo more people have insurance. Um, and according to the Affordable Care Act, um, birth control is one of the things that's free. So public re health researchers have identified that because that is now free, a record number of women are taking it. And in medical history, one thing that's happened is that um, IUDs are more popular than they've ever been. And it's, um, they're like 99.9% .9 effective. So they think it's like that more women are using more effective birth control. So the demand for abortion has been declining significantly. Yeah. Um, but, but now, as was the case in the early 1970s, um, all, all, women from all ranges of life still are the, the demographic seeking abortion. So a lot of women have already had children or want to have more, and actually a majority want to have more children. Um, a majority identify um, as being having a religion. Um, and one thing that we've seen historically, this is the case with both birth control and abortion, is that women across religions are equally as likely to want either birth control or abortion. So Catholic women have, have sought birth control in equivalent number to Protestant women, in equivalent number to Jewish women. Um, so the social history doesn't always match some of the, the debates that we have at the, at the higher level. Yeah. And the last case that we read about today is, is, is Hellerstead. And again, there are a lot of cases in between. We've, we've skipped through a lot of cases, but this is the third, probably most significant one in our lifetime. Um, was Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt, again, a case that originated out of Texas. And what do you remember from our reading about this case? What was being litigated or challenged? 
was this access to hospitals for admitting privileges? All right, so you're you're right on the cusp of it. So, yes. Um, I know one of them was that like the physicians had to be within like some amount of miles from a hospital because that was like the only way it could be safe because they were saying it's such like a dangerous procedure. Okay, so uh, t to combine with wh what Amanda said with what you said, it's basically that like hos uh, physicians who performed abortions according to a new law that was passed in 2013 in Texas called HB2, House Bill 2. So the shorthand is HB2. It was kind of like that Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act. It had a lot of different requirements. And one of the requirements of HB2 passed in 2013 was that abortion providers had to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. Francis. Wasn't there another thing that they had to like, go back and modify the hospital or the clinic to be surgically ready? Like why in the hallways make surgical equipment more than what they needed? Okay. So you may have observed, like when you go to get, um, if you've ever had oral surgery done, that, that that doctor's office looks a little bit different than like when you would go see a pediatrician, which looks a little bit different from your dentist's office. Um, there are different requirements for all sorts of different medical offices. And what Texas tried to do was say that abortion clinics needed to abide by the same standards that we require of ambulatory surgical centers. So they needed to be able to resuscitate people. They needed to be able to have two gurneys in case like uh, some sort of surgical mishap happened. But again, the types of abortion performed at these clinics were not surgical. There was no surgery ever happening at these places. So it's very expensive to retrofit a clinic to meet these new standards. Yeah. Is this the same law that also required um, abortion providers to tell their patients that abortions led to higher risk of breast cancer? So that is part of the informed consent law. And that, that's not what was being challenged here. Um, so that's still commonplace in many states, um, including Louisiana, that those, those types of brochures are still given out. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, what was notable about this case is that the litigants, so the people challenging HB2, said, this is an undue burden. And they weren't hopeful when they went to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court has since the early 1990s, been very reluctant to identify anything as an undue burden. But in this case, the Supreme Court came back and said, no, HB2, many sections of this actually are an undue burden. There are almost no physicians at these clinics who've been granted admitting privileges, like, because hospitals don't have to do that. They don't have to give you admitting privileges. And in fact, the way that admitting privileges work, you usually have to perform a certain number of surgeries at a hospital in order for them to want to give you admitting privileges. And because abortion is so safe, these doctors never have any reason to go to the hospital to perform surgery. So they had almost no relationship with these hospitals. So understandably, these hospitals didn't want to give them admitting privileges. So the Supreme Court saw this and said, you know, these laws don't make sense. Like, this isn't the way that medicine is actually occurring on the ground. Um, and But the thing about this case is that it applied only to Texas's law. That's why there are similar laws to HB2 on the books in other states and why those are, that they're still constitutional because the scope of that decision only applied to Texas. 
Yeah. I actually have a quick question. Okay. Regarding like the state of Alabama and like how Alabama just in like the current election, like they sought to recognize the like the sanctity of the unborn life. Like what do we see happening with that in Roe v. Wade? Like I know it's like an Alabama resident, like that was kinda crazy that I had to vote on that. Right. I mean, so this is something like that would be an interesting question for you to talk about in your political science questions because this is like unraveling in ways that are really complicated. Um because in some states, so for example, with the most recent election, a lot of states that had been pretty conservative have turned to be more pro-choice and more progressive. But nationally, um, the federal bench is becoming much more conservative, and the Supreme Court is becoming more conservative. So it kind of leaves both pro-choice and anti-abortion activists at kind of an impasse. They don't know, like, at it, on the lower level, might one side be successful, but as it gets kicked up, suddenly the other side is at an advantage. Um, so this is a really tricky time, um, legally. Yeah, Sid. Should, um, if Roe v. Wade is overturned at some point, does that invalidate, does that overturning then also get rid of the undue birth, like the later cases? Right, so if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, yeah, suddenly, like, the undo, none of that matters anymore. Like, so cases like Plan B, v, Planned Parenthood v. Casey would be invalidated by that. Yeah, good question. Yeah. I could have more of a comment, but I was just thinking when we were talking about like, that Sherry Finkbein moment, how it's kind of now become almost a moral issue over whether, like, if you find out when you're pregnant that you're baby will be born with mental or physical disabilities kind of become a, a moral issue of like what do you do because it's you know it's like oh you, that's so horrible or maybe like abort your baby just because it's not completely healthy but it's also like it's very hard to raise a disabled child so it's just I don't know I was just thinking about that how now that it is legal it's become this kind of moral question. So Amanda is pointing out like a very interesting ethical question so in the 1960s, it wouldn't have been considered ethically controversial to say, like, my child is going to be born with a profound disability. I would like an abortion. Like, that would not have been that controversial of a statement. But there's been a disability rights movement in the interim. And suddenly, that's become a very tricky uh, position to defend. So in, some people say that like abortion and talking about it is almost like a test plot for talking about a range of issues that almost have nothing to do with abortion. And this issue of disability is, is among the issues that just creeps up. Absolutely. Yes, Julia. Um, all of my life, abortion has been an issue that's based on like morals almost, ethics, like religion. It's never really been like a health issue. It's, more, it's been like morals and religion. So when did it sort of take that shift from like being about like, you know from the way it used to be viewed like when did that transfer happen like when did it become such a, like yeah. a partisan and controversial issue so there are a few different moments so like one is that it really became a public issue that was talked about in newspapers um in the night in the mid-19th century um doctors really made it front page news and one thing that's kind of interesting is when we go back and look at the historical record, when newspapers were really getting off the ground and trying to sell a lot of issues, they were very tabloid-like. Like, they liked to do exposés of, like, a, a famous guy who'd had an affair um, or an explosive divorce. 
And one of the things that newspapers started publishing were examples of very well-to-do women trying to get abortions, because this would sell a lot of newspapers. It was really fascinating, and it was morally shaming. Um, and so some of the taboos about abortion really took off in the mid-19th century. But as far as like where we are in politics today and the way that that's like one of the first questions that's asked of politicians... That became commonplace in the late 1970s and in the early 1980s. That's when we see that shift. Yeah. Yes? Is there like a state's rights issue in any of this? Because like if Roe be, if Roe was like overturned, it would go to states then. Right. Make, so like we've seen we've talked a lot about how like other issues of race and gender based discrimination, like like racist and sexist parade as like champions of states' rights? Like, is there any of that going on here? All right, so Julie asked this question, like, will this ultimately become a states' rights issue? And a lot of people think, yes, it will. So you're absolutely right. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, individual states are still at liberty to, to legalize or ban abortion as they like. And so the speculation is that abortion will be available in states that have historically been pretty supportive of abortion rights, so probably places like uh, Texas. I'm sorry, no, not Texas, uh, New York. Um, But in states like here in Louisiana, it probably would be prohibited um, just because um, our state legislature has been um, pretty opposed to abortion. Um, so, So it would probably be piecemeal across the nation. So you want to know about that? Or okay, so after Roe v. Wade, um, it basically invalidated every state that had a criminal prohib- prohibition, like Louisiana, like a lot of states, on abortion. And so, in response, what a lot of legislators did is immediately after 1973, they passed laws saying if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned. This is a go. We've already got it on the books. This criminal abortion law takes effect once again. So Louisiana is among several states that have that provision on the books. They're, they're ready to go. Yeah. Yes. Remy. Historically, has there ever been a single law regarding controlling men's bodies? All right. So Remy asked, has there, have there been comparable laws regulating, like, so men's, like, reproductive health? No. <laughs> so that, that's an easy one. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Roe is about like the inferred right to privacy, um, and if it was overturned, would that affect like HIPAA or other like clinical setting things that don't relate to abortion at all? So. That's a good question. So Trent's question is, if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, would that affect other policies, laws, t- in which privacy is part and parcel of it, right? That, like, you know when you go and talk to your attorney that you have attorney-client um, privilege? So, no, those other laws would not be affected. This is specific to abortion. So the right, our general right to privacy in life is not contingent upon the abortion law. It's just with regard to abortion. Is that abortion and birth control or just abortion? So there are some. So Trent's question is, would Roe v. Wade also invalidate like Griswold? And the answer is no. But there is, and again, this is where a political scientist could be helpful too. 
many of the same legislators who seek to criminalize abortion are also opposed to, for example, the inclusion of birth control in the Affordable Care Act. Like there is, there's a correlation. Yeah. Yes. If I remember correctly, there are only three abortion clinics in Louisiana, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, why does that not place an undue, undue burden on people that are seeking abortions who have to travel hours to receive one? So that's that's an interesting question. Why, if there are, like some states like Mississippi only have one provider, why is that not an undue burden? And one is that the right to abortion is, as, as it was written, was not a guarantee that you have a right to abort, that you can get an abortion. So the state has no affirmative responsibility to help a person pay for one. Um, it has no affirmative responsibility to ensure that anyone is, you know, that a doctor is providing them in your state. So that you don't have an affirmative right to abortion. There's nothing that the state is compelled to do to enable you to exercise that right. And most famously, in 1976, Congress passed the Hyde Amendment, H-Y-D-E, and the Hyde Amendment prohibits federal dollars from being used to pay for abortion. So that's why if a person is on receiving federal Medicaid dollars, or um, they, that money cannot be applied to an abortion. Um, Planned Parenthood, because they sometimes receive federal grants, they're required by federal law to have two different account books. So any money that they get from the federal government goes into one and that can one account, and that can be used for like cervical cancer screening, um, mammography, um, those kinds like routine health exams. But any money that they use to pay for abortion comes out of a separate account, and those are like the private donations. So if you donate money to Planned Parenthood, that goes in that separate account that's not filled with taxpayer money. Yeah, and that's by federal law. Any other questions? All right. Well, very good. Good to see you. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.